welcome to the Science is Gray podcast. Contrary to widespread belief and mainstream media portrayals, science isn't always black and white. I'm your host, Serena Farb, and as a former science teacher with a biochemistry degree and passionate justice activist, I believe that social progress and justice depend on open scientific dialogue and debate, even when it's unpopular or controversial. On this podcast, we have in-depth conversations exploring scientific issues from a holistic perspective that allows room for nuance, understanding bias, ethical dilemmas, and reaching into the gray areas of science and ethics in society. One of the most controversial scientific topics at present is climate change and what to do or not do about it. And more specifically, especially in my world, there is a fierce debate within many environmental and sustainability circles about agriculture and greenhouse gas emissions. Various organizations, films, and activists regularly share radically different numbers about the role that raising animals for food plays in climate change and have radically different ideas about what we should be focusing on to solve climate change. These conflicting numbers and narratives raise a lot of questions about what is really going on. For example, is animal agriculture responsible for 14% of emissions, as the UN says it is, or more than 50% of emissions, as several other papers say? And if it is so high and such a big issue, why don't we hear more about it? Why are the official UN and EPA numbers usually some of the lowest estimates around? Today, Dr. Silesh Rao, who is the founder and executive director of Climate Healers, joins me to share his thoughts and research on this topic. Dr. Rao is a systems engineer with over three decades of professional experience and has authored more than 20 technical peer-reviewed papers, 13 patents, two books, and is the executive producer of five documentaries. Since 2006, he has made solving the climate crisis and healing the planet his full-time work. And I am thrilled to share Silesh's wisdom and first-hand experience with you today. get started, I just want to remind everyone that if you visit my website, bornvegan.org, you can find more of my work and sign up for my email list to get notified every time I release a new episode. Plus, all the links to my social media pages and YouTube channel are there if you'd like to engage with me more frequently. Welcome, Silesh. Thank you so much for uh, coming on the Science is Great podcast today. Well, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So to start off, for people who might be listening to the podcast who don't know who you are, Mm -hmm. can you give me a very short synopsis of uh, who you are and your background and how you got into this work? Yeah, so I'm a systems engineer, which means I I tend to look at different science topics and put it together into a coherent picture that allows me to figure out how to come up with a solution. That's what I do. That's my specialty. And so I used to work on the internet back in the 90s and you know there I was responsible for making a gigabit ethernet happen on copper which is which required the same sort of nuanced understanding of how AM radio interferes with wires how FM radio interferes with wires how TV stations (laughs) interfere with wires Mm -hmm. and then how wires interact with each other and you know so anyway and since 2006 I've been focusing full-time on the environment and specifically climate change so I bring that lens to my understanding of climate science. You know, that's what I've been doing, studying uh-huh. it since 2006. We like <laughs> a big picture systems thinking here. So Right. That's basically, you know, a, science is people ask questions and they answer them. Scientists do a good job of answering the questions that they're being asked, you know, but 
uh, engineers are the ones who put together the science into a solution, mm-hmm. right? So and that requires seeing behind the science to see what is really going on. So we're going to dig into some of the numbers mm-hmm. of climate change today, which I know, especially when I'm talking to a lot of people, other climate activists even, but mostly mm-hmm. people who are not vegan or haven't heard um you know, the numbers around that, you know, anytime I try and tell them how big of an impact animal agriculture has on climate change and greenhouse gas emissions, they'll say, oh, no, you're over-exaggerating, or those are, Mm -hmm. you know, outlier numbers. Um, It's not 51%, like, it's uh, 14%, or the EPA says that, you know, animal agriculture is like 9% of greenhouse. There's there's so many numbers that get thrown around, and a lot of people I've noticed seem confused or say things like, we should just go with the middle number or, you know. Right. Um, so what, what are, in, you know, in general, what do you make of this? What are your thoughts on why there's so many different estimates out there? See, the, the reason this confusion arises is because science has been politicized. Okay, we have an intergovernmental panel on climate change. It's not... It's scientific panel. It's an intergovernmental panel, which means politics has gotten into it. Mm-hmm. Okay, <clears throat> politics. The way politics gets into science, especially climate science, is through conventions. They put conventions in place and say, "This is how we do measurements." Okay. Mm. Okay. Now, as an engineer, when I started looking at this, uh, I look at everything. I said, "Throw the conventions aside, and I want to look at the entire picture." Okay, because. Yeah. Ultimately, <coughs> conventions are shorthands for helping us understand something that's complicated in a simple way, right? So it's, it tries to simplify something complex so that you can understand it mm-hmm. better. And conventions are useful if they point you towards the right solution. And conventions are dangerous if they point you away from the right solution. And that's what has happened with climate science. The conventions have been put in place that are pointing us away from the right solution. That's why I say it's dangerous, what they're doing. Because nature doesn't care about conventions. Nature is going to give you consequences for your actions. And the actions are everything that you did from eternity on back, right? So 10,000 years back is when we started deforesting the earth. And so all the CO2 that we emitted from deforestation for 10,000 years is part of the climate change that we have caused over the years. Okay, right. so if you look at an anthropogenic uh, climate change, it includes the deforestation from 10,000 years back. Now, you could argue that for the first 9,850 years, it didn't matter so much. But in reality, what has happened is the temperature stayed constant because we did that. Because we were deforesting. Exactly. If we hadn't deforested, the Earth would have gone back to another ice age. Ah. It would have gotten colder. It would have gotten colder because there is a 0.5 watt per square meter change in the solar radiation that falls on Earth that causes the Earth to either go into an ice age or come out of it. Just a half a watt per square meter is enough to do that. Okay. And what we did through deforestation and through fossil fuels burning over the last 200 years is we have raised it by about 3 watts per square meter. So we have overwhelmed the natural cycle. Mm-hmm. And therefore, the Earth will not go back to another ice age ever again. Okay, because we have... Ever just, again. Well, unless we just all die <laughs> off and, you know, <laughs> and the Earth goes back to normal, right? Uh-huh. But as long as we are around, 
the earth will is very unlikely that the earth will ever go back to another ice age again so when you start looking at climate change and the impact of human activities from 10000 years back you will notice that animal agriculture and deforestation have caused more co2 emissions than all fossil fuel sources combined oh wow okay historically okay. historically mm-hmm. this is why the the uh, potential for vegan reforestation is so high we are calculating at least 2000 gigatons of co2 you can store on land if we just all go vegan and reforest the planet bring back the original forest that used to be there mm-hmm. because sahara was forested you know there was a fertile crescent down there right yeah. and and we just chopped it all down and then let the goats ge- come and graze away the rest and so it became a, fo- a desert so but all those things can be reversed right if you put our minds to it Yeah, I mean absolutely. it's easier to do it on earth than it is to go and start a new <laughs> ecosystem on Mars. No. I can assure you that. I would agree with that. <laughs> right. So so I started looking at things from how nature would see it. You know, look at every aspect of everything we have done and see now, you know, how would you tell that story? So IPCC always starts from 1750. And the the IPCC for people who don't know is the Intergovernmental Panel on, on Climate, climate Change. Change. Okay so they have a convention mm-hmm. we only start looking from 1750 onwards the year 1750 yeah the year okay. 1750 onwards because the claim is that it's only then that we saw a sl- slight increase mm. in temperature okay until then the temperature was constant they don't ask oh, so why was it constant you know it was constant because of what we did right so uh-huh. there are other scientists who have studied that kaplan wrote a paper on how much co2 was emitted from deforestation from 10,000 years back to 1750 and it was 50% more than all the fossil fuel based CO2 since 1750 wow just that <laughs> you know so this is what i did as a systems engineer i just started looking at this from a fresh perspective and said throughout all the conventions i want to start from scratch and mm-hmm. i want to understand the data and when you truly understand the data you realize that the number one thing you should be doing is to shut down the killing machine because <laughs> life is dying on the planet Okay, life is dying not just from climate change, but also from they are being killed off. I mean, Amazon is being burned down, the ocean is being dredged up. So, life is literally dying because we are killing it. When I started looking at it from uh, from a holistic perspective, I realized that the killing machine there is nothing that does not improve when you shut down the killing machine. Okay, it, everything improves. That right? makes sense. <laughs> right. but the burning machine or the fossil fuel burning mm-hmm. machine has nuances associated with it because if you shut down the burning machine right away then you will also eliminate the aerosols in the atmosphere the cooling compounds which is like other things besides co2 that right. are released like the pollution right. elements right so to sulfur dioxide mm-hmm. and black carbon and all kinds of other pollutants that we are putting into the atmosphere when we burn coal or oil uh-huh and those some of those are actually cooling the earth okay. specifically sulfur dioxide is cooling the earth and so they are cooling the earth by about 1/3 of the heating that we are doing from fossil fuels okay Case. so 1/3 So they're reducing the fossil fuel heating by about a third. By yeah. about a third, okay. Yeah. And they only stay in the atmosphere for a few weeks. So if you shut down the burning machine within a few weeks, you will start heating up the earth by about another watt per square meter, which is not what we want to do. Just trying to make sense of this. Right. So the burning machine, the fossil fuels, right. they're both heating and 
cooling right. things. Right. Um, but the heating element lasts longer. Right than the cooling part and so they don't cancel each other out like if no. you stop you know what happens is the heating element the heating portion of it is very tiny but it's been integrated over hundreds of years so That's the right. cumulative impact of fossil fuels is very harmful and if we stop today like the annual impact wouldn't we wouldn't be helping that much right. cutting the annual impact of fossil fuels but, but the annual short-term impact of the cooling would be immediate. Would be immediate. Yes. This okay. is why, from a systems perspective, if you're trying to solve climate change, honestly, you have to take that into account. I mean, if if I have any systems engineer working for me who comes and says, oh, you know, I'm going to just turn off the burning machine, I'm going to ignore the killing machine, I would fire him. It's that incompetent to suggest something like that. But that's exactly what everyone is suggesting we do. And I don't blame them, because I think they are not systems engineers. Mm -hmm. None of them are. You know, they are all scientists. And scientists don't solve problems. Scientists basically answer questions. Mm -hmm. Engineers are the ones who are trained to solve problems. And would you say, like, engineers, when they're trying to solve problems, too, like, they're, like, setting up what kind of question we're asking. They're setting the, the big picture parameters. Because mm. in my experience, how you ask the question right. can determine <laughs> what how you answer, like, right. what answers you right. get. So is that true here? Like, you're saying the systems engineers are probably kind of more phrasing and figuring out what questions are even the important ones to ask? Well, it's a little bit like, you know, if you wanted to send a rocket to Mars, would you ask a systems engineer to design the propulsion systems and the payload systems mm -hmm. and things like that? Or would you ask a scientist or a politician to do it? You wouldn't ask a lawyer or a politician, even a scientist. I mean, you look, look at how JPL works, Jet Propulsion Labs works, right? It's usually the engineers, the systems engineer, engineers who are really figuring out. And they're asking the scientists, okay, can you go and tell us what will happen if we change this material mm. from here to here? So the scientists are collecting data to exactly. answer specific questions. Answer specific pieces. questions, but mm -hmm. the engineers are the ones who are generating the questions and asking, right? And I don't see that happening in climate science. That was my point. Okay. okay. I don't that see that happening sense. in climate science. It's just uh, intergovernmental panel on climate change seems to be full of scientists and not engineers. Absolutely. And, and they're all, you know, sort of figuring out how to ignore the killing machine. There seems to be this cow in the room that they don't want to look at. <laughs> okay. It's just so obvious to me, just watching their um, way they even massage the data and present it to you. Mm -hmm. Like, for instance, the CO2 cycle, the carbon dioxide cycle, is huge. It's 20 times, the natural CO2 cycle is 20 times larger than the fossil fuel burning. When you say the natural CO2 cycle, what exactly are you <clears throat> referring to? So I'm referring to uh, vegetation, um, you know, uh, decaying and emitting CO2, and then mm -hmm. photosynthesis absorbing CO2 from the atmosphere. So there's a cycle. There's an annual cycle that's happening. Right, right. And that annual cycle is about, it's about 20 times larger than the fossil fuel cycle. And so when you say 20 times larger, like there's 20 times more CO2 exactly. going through that cycle compared right. to the emissions of from fossil, fossil fuels. fuels. Okay. Right? Mm -hmm. So it's there's this huge cycle on which the fossil fuel is fossil fuel cycle is being added and the deforestation cycle is being added. So then it becomes a question of, okay, what do you call as natural and say ignore it? This is what they're doing. They're ignoring the natural cycle and then just looking at the fossil fuel cycle and saying that's what 
we caused, and then adding some deforestation element to it. And that deforestation element that they add to it also is net deforestation. So they're deforesting, say, 30 million acres, and they're leaving aside 10 million acres to come back. So then they're saying, we only deforested 20 million acres. Okay. Right? So there's all this massaging of the data that's going on. Mm-hmm. And then you know, and on grazing land, they're, we are chopping down every um, ounce of vegetation that is left standing after the animals finish grazing, and then we are burning it. And that's not being counted as part of animal agriculture's impact. So all these things are not being counted because we are claiming that that is part of the natural cycle. Ah, okay. They're saying, well, if we chop down the vegetation and burn it, nature will bring it back next year anyway. That's the, sure. the argument is nature will bring it back next year. So we don't have to count it. Until, of course, nature doesn't, and it becomes a desert. So there's 20 million acres that's being desertified every year. That's not being counted when you look at animal agriculture's impact. So there is this creative accounting that's going on where things are being pushed as off-the-books accounting, right? Yeah. And those things don't fly with me. <laughs> because I'm, a, I'm supposed to... I mean, normally, when I look at a problem, people are telling me, how would you solve this problem? That's, how, that's the way I look at things. Uh-huh. Okay, how would I solve climate change? Yeah, <laughs> that's what we should be asking. Yes, right? So, but yeah. that's, the, that's the way I started looking at it. And so when I say, how would I solve climate change? The first thing that occurred to me was, there's so much land that's being used for animal agriculture. So what is the opportunity cost of bringing forests back on that land? Mm-hmm. In fact, this was the first question I asked Al Gore back in 2006. Mm-hmm. I asked him, you know, if we just bring back the forest that we cut for animal agriculture, can we not reverse climate change? Uh-huh. And he didn't want to answer it. <laughs> so when someone doesn't want to answer a question, I mean, I tend to focus on it. <laughs> of course. Because <laughs> I know that there is something there that they don't want to talk about, right? Right. Yeah. So the opportunity cost is the biggest component in my calculation. What I'm saying is that if we choose to eat animal foods, we are causing certain amount of emissions to happen. Yeah. Deforestation to happen, methane to be emitted, you know, some energy to be burned for refrigeration, for transportation, and all that. So there's a certain amount of emissions that happens when we choose to eat animal foods. Yeah. Now, if we make that choice, make a different choice, and say everyone eats plant foods instead, okay, you don't emit all this anymore, and then suddenly you're going to release 37% of the land area of the planet back to nature, on which nature mm-hmm. will start sequestering carbon, CO2. And remember, the nature cycle is 20 times bigger than ours. All you have to do is to put the balance on the right side of it, and nature will do the job of healing the planet. Okay, So, mm-hmm. so this is the idea. The idea. That's the opportunity cost. So then you calculate that. And you can calculate that based on uh, how much vegetation is already growing right now mm-hmm. that we are chopping and feeding to our animals. Right. So you can just calculate that. And whatever c- you calculate as above-ground vegetation, twice as much will be below ground. Mm-hmm. So you can triple the above-ground vegetation by th- you know, so to get the s- total CO2. Okay, cause, so you're saying like the, we're talking about the vegetation that's cut mm-hmm. to graze cows generally, that if it was there as part of the natural cycle, it would actively be sequestering carbon from the atmosphere. Yeah. So so that's a, it's a minimum Mm -hmm. of how much you can sequester, right? Whatever the cows are eating is the minimum amount of vegetation that could have been stored on that land Mm -hmm. if we didn't touch it. Okay. That makes sense. Plus, twice as much would be under the soil. 
like in terms of the roots or in terms microbes of the root structures and and the soil microbes yeah. and when that is deforested or when that land is stripped then that you're goes saying back up. then that goes up and whatever was under the ground is also not um, sequestering carbon actively either that also decays goes back up see when you chop down a tree okay eventually the the roots also decay the root decays mm-hmm. and then it releases CO2 right so the rule of thumb is that whatever above ground vegetation calculations you can triple it okay for below ground and soil yeah so you then took all of this research and you actually recently wrote and published mm. a research paper that that basically put a number to all of this right, right and said um, if I'm correct, that historically speaking, looking at from this systems perspective, that animal agriculture is responsible for 87% of the impact, like climate change mm-hmm. that we're seeing. So we have to parse that, okay? I, because in our paper we wrote, we said that, I said that animal agriculture is the leading cause of climate change. Mm-hmm. And it's on an annual basis. It's just, it's responsible for at least eighty-seven percent of greenhouse. So that's gas. A, that's an annual basis. On an annual basis. And is that eighty-seven percent of greenhouse gas emissions or of climate change? Do those mean different things? It's eighty-seven percent of greenhouse gas emissions. Okay. Okay. I'm, and there I use the IPCC conventions to measure. Okay. okay. So if you look at it, then I then I also did a um, sensitivity analysis looking at the radiative forcing and how radiative forcing increases on an annual basis. And that also showed that animal agriculture, or the, or the killing machine, as I call it, is, I mean, it's by far the leading cause. Mm-hmm. Okay? So the burning machine actually is, is saving us right now. Wow. Yeah, because it's cooling some of the heating that has it's already happened. Not something you hear about. Yeah. So in fact, so the right order in which we need to do these things is to shut down the killing machine as soon as possible and down and then shut down the burning machine by about 11% per year mm. over the next nine years. Okay. So don't do it right away, but do it gradually. If you do it gradually, then you won't heat up the atmosphere more than you're already heating it up now. Until we start drawing down the radiative forcing, we haven't made any progress, okay? And can you just explain radiative forcing for someone who might not know that term? So every molecule that we put into the atmosphere from human sources either heats the earth or cools the earth. It has no choice but to do one or the other, Uh okay? Because every molecule is going to be reflecting radiation in different frequencies. Right. If it is reflecting radiation in the infrared region, then it will be heating the earth. If it's reflecting radiation in the visible region and the ultraviolet region, it will be cooling the earth. That's how it works. Yeah. And so some gases like carbon dioxide and methane, they all they're all in the infrared region, so they're going to be heating the earth. Okay. Some gases like sulfur dioxide cool the earth. So what the IPCC did was to look at the net impact of all the gases we have put into the atmosphere and measure the total heating per square meter that we are doing as human beings from our gas emissions, not just greenhouse gases, but also sulfur all, dioxide. All gas, all things that we're emitting. Oh, all things that we're emitting. Mm-hmm. We just took at the cumulative impact of it, and we can come up with a number. Mm-hmm. And that number represents how much we are heating for every square meter of okay. the Earth's surface. So it's, um, I think now it's about 3.29 watts, something like that, okay. per square meter. That is over and above what the sun is doing. See, the solar radiation 
is about 130 watts per square meter. So to that, we have added 3.2 watts per square meter. Mm -hmm. Okay, But that's enough to so trigger a bunch of runaway feedback loops. Right. Okay, And so potentially, you know, the permafrost could melt, the Arctic ice is going to melt, and so that will cause... So when the Arctic ice melts, it's going to absorb more heat than all the greenhouse gases we've added to the atmosphere, mm -hmm. so which means it from three watts is going to go up to six watts per square meter yeah. on average. And that is a disaster. <laughs> yeah, because if it goes up to six watts, then we don't know. It could keep going up and up and up. Because, right. Yeah. So this is why uh, it's we have to first acknowledge that we are causing this as, as a species. Mm -hmm. And then once we acknowledge that we are causing this, we have a responsibility as a species to maintain it. So what do you think, just in, you know, talking all this, like one of the things that comes to mind that's a really popular phrase right now is listen to the science or mm -hmm. follow the science. Sometimes it's listen to the scientists. Right. Um, given everything you've just said and how you are saying things that the majority of the climate science and scientific community is not talking about. Mm. What do you think about this idea that people should just listen to the science or listen to the scientists? I would say get involved. Don't just listen to the scientists. Get involved. Try to understand it. It's not that hard. Mm -hmm. Okay, It's not that hard. We, so we have tried to put a lot of data and uh, explanations on our website. Mm -hmm. And we actually now have a bathtub challenge so it's a it's a simple analogy to the climate change mm -hmm. so that anyone can understand what is going on by by trying to save a baby in a bathtub you know it's, it's, a, it's like you're a plumber and you've been asked to save this baby so and you have these two faucets that are running you know and the drain is clogged so you have to figure out how to turn off the faucets mm -hmm. and how to unclog the drain right in what order should we do it? And so I think it's a, I mean, when you start looking at it from that perspective, you realize it's, a, it's actually a simple uh, first order differential equation you need to solve, you know? <laughs> uh -huh. And so any AP class, a AP science or AP environmental class should be able to solve it. Then you'll understand what is really going on in the climate. Because mm. okay? there's a one-to-one -one correspondence between the bathtub challenge and climate science. Okay. Okay, and so we even show the correspondence. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I tell people, you know, don't just listen to the scientists because every scientist has who knows what agenda they have, right? Yeah. And uh, who knows in, um, what portion of climate science they're, uh, they're analyzing because every scientist is asking some question and answering it. That's all they're doing. Whereas you have to look at the big picture if you want to, if you want to really solve a problem, and that is systems engineering. Really, mm -hmm. that's systems engineering one on one, you know, <laughs> yeah. and that's what I tried to bring in the paper as well. So, what kind of feedback have you gotten uh, since publishing this paper from other scientists, from others in the climate science or uh, climate activism community? Um, have you had any critiques? Like, what, what are other people saying when you present this kind of radical, different approach to things? Well, I'm presenting their own data. <laughs> so there is nothing different in what I'm presenting, right? So it's, it's, I'm taking data from the IPCC, and I'm saying, your own data is showing that we need to be shutting down the killing machine first. Mm -hmm. 
it's not mine you know? <laughs> yeah so um so all the papers are referenced there so i don't see how anyone can even refute it so but i haven't had any uh criticism so far okay. from anyone mhm uh, i had a lot of positive feedback from people and people who have said there are people who have said oh you know we don't believe you that's yes. about it uh-huh. but then i ask what don't you believe mm-hmm. you know what portion of that uh is i've referenced everything mm-hmm. so none of that data is mine right so yeah. i've i've shared about the study on uh, instagram in particular a couple times and i always get a couple comments of where are you getting the 87% number mm-hmm. this is crazy right. you know the un says it's 14% right yeah <laughs> but the un is the un food and agriculture organization mm-hmm. that's saying 14.5% after they formed a public partnership with the international meat secretariat the international dairy federation international poultry council and the international egg association okay wow this was a founding these are the founding members the ag industry basically the ag industry <laughs> were the founding members of the livestock environmental assessment and performance partnership leap partnership so would you say they're basically then responsible for trying to analyze data about exactly. their own industry exactly that stands to lose profits depending on what the outcome is right. <laughs> exactly that's exactly what happened okay that is the UNFAO report mm. that everyone is referring to okay it's a report uh, published by the leap partnership the livestock environmental assessment and performance partnership which is a public partnership between the UN food and agriculture organization and the dairy industry and the meat industry and wow. poultry industry and the egg industry so they were the founding partners mm-hmm. okay and you're telling me take that and and swallow it i'm saying <laughs> excuse me you know i mean no engineer would ever do that uh-huh. you know i mean i have a responsibility to my profession to to be honest but what i'm looking at Yeah, so critiques or pushback. Mm. Do you just get a lot of silence then? And and the other thing I'm curious about is what was the publishing process like because right. I'm I'm hearing a lot right now about well how politicized science has gotten, how difficult it is to even often get things published. Right. You know, did you What was that process like when you set out to publish this paper? Did you have any issues in the peer review f- process right. um or anything like that? So when I uh first wrote it and I sent it to the usual magazines like mm-hmm. Nature and Science and all that, and they all said no, we don't want to touch it. And did they say much. why? Well, they said Nature actually said it's not of general interest. <laughs> That's and a I great said, reason not to publish <laughs> science, right? People aren't interested, so we just won't publish it. <laughs> Yeah they said the paper is not of general interest and I'm saying what <laughs> and I'm just showing you that animal agriculture is the leading cause of climate change uh-huh. and does not of general anyway so they have their own reasons right so mm-hmm. um then uh, I had it reviewed basically I published it on my, on our web page mm-hmm. and I had it reviewed by uh, scientists mm-hmm. okay I mean so I had um three different scientists who went through it one was a retired climate scientist mm-hmm. who actually quit because they wouldn't talk about mm-hmm. animal agriculture okay right so uh, and he did a thorough review i had a couple of other scientists review it as well and then i sent it to so then i was invited to come and talk about this 
by the ecological society so i went and spoke about it in the at the ecological society and then after my speech and it was their keynote just the keynote address for their annual gathering so after my speech they said uh, now i said and i have a paper on this would you like to publish it mm-hmm. and they said oh we'll take we'll be happy to take a look at it so i sent them the paper and then nothing happened <laughs> And I assume no, this is just like you know nature and science. They don't want to touch it with uh-huh. <laughs> a ten-foot pole, and and I let it slide, right? So then a year later, I got a message from another scientist saying, "I want to refer your refer to your paper in my book." And so if it is peer-reviewed and published, then it's easier for me. Mm-hmm. And she asked, "Is it being peer-reviewed and published?" And if not, I'd be happy to be one of the reviewers. Okay. <laughs> so could you please suggest to the publisher? Uh-huh. If anyone is considering that I'd be happy to be one of the reviewers. So I wrote to this uh, editor and I said, you know, if you need reviewers, I have plenty of people who are willing to review it for you. And he said, we already did it. Oh wow. So it had been published and you didn't even realize yeah, it. Yeah. We already did it and it's it's going to be published in April. And I said, "What?" They just <laughs> forgot to inform you that they were reviewing. Yeah, it. they went through a review internally and they mm-hmm. decided to publish it. And apparently because I was the keynote speaker, mm-hmm. uh they just did a editorial review. Okay. Just checking that the numbers were correct and mm-hmm. that's about it. Wow. Yeah, that's so that's so interesting that major journals are deciding <laughs> what gets published if it's popular or interesting or not. Like Well, this is how this the system maintains its version of the truth. And the version of the truth that it wants to maintain is that version that continues to support the colonial system. Mhm. Let's face it, we are we have a colonial system absolutely so certain things are not to be discussed in the colonial system and you will realize that the fundamental the foundation of the colonial system is carnism mhm it's only through carnism and the consumption of animals that you expand your footprint around the world because animal agriculture is using up most of the land on the planet <laughs> yeah. right so and it's only providing 12% of the food uh-huh so just imagine if you want to get 50% of the food from animal agriculture you need the entire planet yeah plus mars plus venus or whatever right so this is how the colonial system expands its footprint and extracts resources from other lands and other people to benefit a few and therefore science is also colonized okay let's face it absolutely and so only certain versions of science are kosher in the system vandana shiva mm-hmm. if you're familiar with her she speaks about that a lot the colonization how how our agriculture system is being used to colonize the planet right. by by forcing mass agriculture by forcing corporate um seed collection and you know right. corporate all patented patented corporate driven food supply onto indigenous communities around the world yeah harming them and controlling their food so it's right. a- absolutely a form of colonization yeah it is colonization 101 you know so this is why they don't like veganism because veganism is the foundation of a decolonized system mm-hmm. because it's saying i don't need to expand my footprint anymore right so mm-hmm. that is so that's anathema for colonial capitalist system but anyway i mean i um i have been studying this now for 15 years mm-hmm. and once i realized that i had been lied to in my textbooks i'd been lied to and made to consume dairy when i didn't need to when i was allergic to it and didn't even know it you know i was so called lactose intolerant i didn't even know it uh-huh. 
And I then I started seeing all the lies and I started unraveling all the lies that I'd been told. And then I realized that the colonial system is still going strong. They pretended to give nations independence and continued to colonize them through the currency system. Because I think the currency system is a colonial currency system. Mm-hmm. Okay, So when I realized all this, I was, I'm determined that this is going to end. Uh-huh. It's over. Colonialism is over. Okay, So if anyone still thinks they can profit from colonialism for the rest of their lives, wake up. It's, it's over. So we just have to figure out a different way of organizing ourselves. That's not colonialism. Do we not know how to do that? Are we so stupid as a species that we don't even know how to do that? Yeah, of course we know. So that's where it, we are, you know? And this is why I say even science is colonized. You have to ask the right questions. And so when you look at it from an engineering perspective, engineers, engineering tends to be decolonized. Why? Because engineers are forced to build things that actually work. It's mm. <laughs> a good point. Right? I mean, I can't pretend something is working when it isn't, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, I cannot pretend something <laughs> is is working when it isn't. I mean, all the Some other way Some people around. try <laughs> really hard. <laughs> right. But ultimately, the people return the thing back to you saying, it doesn't work, man. Mm-hmm. You, know, you said it's going to do this. It didn't do that. Right. So this is where science has to be in alignment with nature. Yeah. Okay? So... Engineers have to ask the tough questions. Engineers have to admit faults as soon as they make them because the longer you wait to admit your fault, the more pain you're going to experience you know, mm-hmm. before you actually have to solve it anyway. Yeah. So we are taught that lesson in the school of hard knocks, so to speak. Right? So we have been there. You know, we have made mistakes and we have figured it out. So do you think there is any hope for like if someone's listening to this and they're wanting to become involved or do something to make a difference do you think there's any hope in joining the dominant paradigm of trying to influence governments politicians the UN like should Mm. should we be focusing on trying to change these bot systems or would you just say nope (laughs) leave that alone do something different um there is value in both. You have to start over. I mean, you have to start something new. Okay, that, And it's easier to build something new that works as opposed to trying to fix something that's so broken, mm-hmm. so backwards. It's, it, everything is the opposite. Okay, It reminds me of uh, the Seinfeld line, right? So George Costanza says, I'm going to start doing the opposite. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> because if everything I've done so far is wrong, then the opposite must be right. So... <laughs> Uh, it's one of those things, right? So, um, but at the same time, it's important to point out what is wrong in the current system. It's important to point out because then it wakes people up into seeing that maybe they're being told lies, mm-hmm. right? Because otherwise, why would they take something new? Right? So, so this is why Gandhi actually did both. He was working on a new system, and simultaneously, he was protesting the British. Okay. So, yeah, because yeah. you, need, you need both. Absolutely. No, it makes sense. I mean, one of the things that I sometimes feel is that anything, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe this is a bias <laughs> that I have, but anytime I see something become 
sort of a mainstream promoted talking point or narrative Mm. that like all the international governments and organizations are parroting. I kind of get suspicious at that minute. And I'm like, how have they co-opted or changed this message? Like, what is what is wrong about this? Because maybe I just have a lack of faith in the system. But it's like I'm so – there are so many stories I know of mm-hmm. where things like the UNFAO are run or run by the industry that, you know, they're supposed to be regulating that the instant I – like, talking about climate change and taking action on it mm. – has become super popular now. It's like, right. like no, very few people are going to go out there and say we shouldn't. There, are, there are some, but but the majority of people are willing to say like we should do something about climate change or climate change mm. is bad. Whether it's mainstream news, mainstream media, our governments, you know. Um, but then I look around and it's like their actions <laughs> haven't changed at all. How are they using this message to continue doing the same thing, mm-hmm. you know, and, and they're while absolutely avoiding any message of going vegan, any message of, that would actually confront the exploitative capitalistic systems that right. they benefit from? Yeah, that, that's a very good question because you have to look at uh, all of the environmental problems. If you look at all the nine planetary boundaries mm-hmm. and see which ones are being violated, you will notice that biodiversity loss is the one that's been violated the most. Okay. It's actually a factor of 100 to 1,000 above what it should be. And when you say biodiversity laws are being violated? Um, um, biodiversity, the loss of biodiversity, the loss of wild animals and wild you know, insects and birds and so mm-hmm. on is a 1,000 times the background rate. How much they're being harmed and killed off. Right. Okay. It's a thousand times the background rate. Wow. So it means we need to reduce it by a factor of a thousand, okay, to reach equilibrium. Wow. Okay. Okay. So compared to that, climate change is only about 30 to 40 percent over what it should mm. be. Okay. Nitrogen and phosphorus loading is 5x what it should be. Okay. So that, that's even worse mm-hmm. than what's happening with um, climate change. And if you look at all of the environmental problems, chemical pollution has not even been measured. We don't even know. Chemical pollution has not been measured. Not even been measured. See, we are pouring 250 billion tons of toxic chemicals into the environment every year. Mm -hmm. Five times as much toxic chemicals as the CO2. Wow. (laughs) And we are pretending that's got nothing to do with anything, right? You're saying, oh, that's not a problem. Reductionism. So, just put them all in little boxes and right. ignore, yeah, ignore them. them. Yeah, we've been ignoring chemical pollution. We don't even know because we, we passed a law in the 50s basically saying that um, we don't have to regulate what chemicals are being used until someone proves that that particular chemical caused their particular disease. Wow. So the, the burden of proof is on people to prove they're being harmed rather exactly. than like a precautionary exactly. principle. Exactly. The other way around mm-hmm. for chemical pollution, so that isn't being, isn't even being measured. So you look at all of the environmental issues. In fact, this is why we did the first documentary we did was on chemical pollution, uh-huh. the human experiment. The human right? experiment. Okay. So if you look at all of these environmental issues, you ask, what is it? Why are they a problem? They are a problem because they are killing life. So this is why biodiversity is a thousand times what it should be. So you need to focus on the leading indicator which is biodiversity loss. Yeah. Okay. And that is telling us we better change 
how we live on this planet by 2026. Otherwise, we are in big trouble. That is much more immediate than even climate change. Mm-hmm. So then why are people focusing on climate change? In fact, we have all been misdirected into focusing on climate change. Distraction. Yeah. yeah. Focusing on climate change and that too, only on the burning machine of climate change, only on the fossil fuel engine. And then we are told the story that we can have green growth by just switching over from fossil fuels to solar and yep. wind energy and building electric cars and all these things, you know. And you can still grow the economy. You can still have colonialism 3.0, <laughs> right? Yeah. That's colonialism 3.0. So I say colonialism 1.0 was when they actually came and ruled other people. Right. Physically, right? Mm-hmm. Colonialism 2.0 was when they pretended to give everybody independence. And then they used the currency mechanism to continue to colonize them. Okay. So you needed foreign exchange if you wanted to buy oil. The only way you can get foreign exchange is by doing what the master wants. Yep. <laughs> so... So there you go. That's colonialism 2.0. And so they're talking about colonialism 3.0 would be, you know, this green growth. And so that is why they're focusing on climate change, because they could continue the same colonialism story. Absolutely. If you really wanted to address environmental issues, you'd be focusing on all of them. And you will immediately see that the number one thing you need to do is to shut down the killing machine and start over and basically change the axioms. We live on two fundamental axioms in this civilization. First is the axiom of consumerism, that the pursuit of happiness is best accomplished by stoking and satisfying a never-ending series of desires. And it is absolutely false. But we have been, we have been sold that continuously in, in ads and in you know, corporations are constantly telling us that story. And so that's one false axiom that we need to overturn. The second is the false axiom of supremacism, which is that life is a competitive game in which those who have gained an advantage may possess, enslave, and exploit animals, nature, and the disadvantaged mm-hmm. for their pursuit of happiness. Okay, So I have an advantage because I have money, so I can do what I want. That is part of the same axiom of supremacism. So our entire system is based on these two axioms, and both of them are false. Mm-hmm. So it's like you know Galileo woke up and discovered that it's not just the sun going around the earth that's false, but two other things are false as well, right? But until Galileo... Uh, insisted that the earth goes around the sun, we could not have the scientific revolution. Uh-huh. right? Because n- gravity, Newton's laws, all of those things would be impossible if you think that the sun goes around the earth. So the scientific revolution could not happen until we overturned the, the false axiom of the sun going around the earth. And the sustainability revolution will not happen until we overturn these two false axioms, the false axiom of consumerism and the false axiom of supremacism. That makes perfect sense. Both of them have to go. <laughs> okay, so we are in a double Galileo moment, and we have to overturn both of those axioms and s- build a new civilization on the correct axioms. And they say, what are the correct axioms? The true axiom of inner peace, which is that the pursuit of happiness is best accomplished by seeking it within ourselves. Mm-hmm. Okay, and the second is the true axiom of unity, that all life is one family in which we each bring our unique skills to give all we can, receive all we need, and become all we are. I say that uh, when we base a civilization on the correct axioms, then it will be sustainable. That's beautiful. Until then, it won't be. (laughs) So that's what our generation has been called to do. You cannot turn these, I mean, you cannot switch these two axioms by just tweaking them. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? It's the exact opposite, right? So revolution it is a it is a revolution in uh, in thinking 
peaceful revolution. Yeah, it's a revolution in uh, in uh, education. So it basically, once we change those two axioms, it'll change everything: our education system, our agricultural system, and our political system. Everything will change. Our currency system will change because our currency system is now based on the false axiom of supremacism. Mm -hmm. Some people seem to have gained an advantage to run a bank, you know, and they're sitting there and saying, we are the boss and <laughs> you guys better do things that I ask you to do. Uh-huh. Right, so uh, that's colonialism. And so colonialism is implemented through banks these days, yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing all that. That's a very hopeful kind of message to end on and wrap up a discussion about crises that we're facing. Um, do you have any last things you want to share or tell people where they can go to find more of your work? Yeah, please go to climatehealers.org. Uh, everything I do is open source. So everything I do, I lay it out there. And so uh, anyone can, even my books are there for you to read. You don't have to buy them if you don't want to. So, uh, and we have, under the science tab, we have all the papers. So, um, the paper that you talked about, the mm -hmm. animal agriculture position paper is there. And then we wrote an engineer solutions paper. So, which is um, engineer solutions to scientists' warnings. Because scientists have warned twice already. Uh -huh. As engineers, we said we shouldn't be warning anymore. We should be solving it. <laughs> and so, we figured out how to solve that. And you'll you'll read about the the false axioms in that. Okay. Yeah. Wonderful. And I'll I'll link all of that in the podcast description as well for people to check out. Thanks so much for listening today. And if you enjoyed this episode or are enjoying the podcast as a whole and want to support me and help get this information in front of more people, I would love it if you could share this episode and also leave a rating and review of the podcast in the iTunes or Spotify app or wherever else you are listening from.